you don't need to run through everything. I just mean we're gonna st- if we're gonna start from the beginning, we have to start with the beginning. Yeah, we just have to start with hello and everything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So tell me when, and I'll start. Okay. Episode 72 of the world famous Tetrawatt Audio Podcast. Rod Rats. I'm Cupcake and Dino, Cupcake and Dino, General Services, and I podcast together with. Shiloh the Cat. Uh, any follow up from last time, John? <laughs> no. Well, I've got some follow up. It turns out Gerard Hyman wasn't Dutch. As I said, he's not from the Netherlands. He was Danish. No, he's, yes, from Denmark. Yes, yes Denmark. D- Danish, yes. Good. Okay. <laughs> okay, right. Now. <laughs> It's going to be an unusual episode. Why is it going to be an unusual episode, John? Right, it's a spe- <laughs> because it's a special episode on a living plesiosaur that lives in Scotland. <laughs> now, why are we oh. doing this? We don't really know, but for some reason, Darren has just read a whole load of books. One, two, three, four books on Loch Ness Monster. This isn't all of them. I can't find the, <laughs> the 2017 edition of Ronald Binz's Loch Ness Mystery Reloaded. Or is it the Loch Ness Mystery, Loch Ness Mystery Reloaded, the Loch Ness Monster Reloaded, the Loch Ness Mystery Reloaded? So instead, I've got the 1982 Loch Ness Mystery solved as a proxy. Uh, I've always been interested in the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> and why are we doing this so fast and weirdly? Because uh, I forgot to record the first 15 minutes, so we're just going to go through the 15 <laughs> minutes really fast, now, oh, so we can get back to things we haven't already said just 15 uh. minutes ago. So, Loch Ness, uh, don't believe in the Loch Ness Monster, there isn't really a Loch Ness Monster, but monsters <laughs> are really interesting because they are cultural archetypes deeply embedded within our collective cultural psyches, as explored in my 2017 book, Hunting Monsters, which I feel like I've covered to death because I've written about it a lot on TechPods, already spoken about it at TechZooCon, spoke about it at various conferences, did a whole year of lectures about monsters, including the Loch Ness Monster. Um... What really interests me, because it's all about me, mm. is that, um, and I think this is true of anything, we live in, we're creatures of our time and our place. So we think right now a set of things are true, if, we, if you are a rational science-led person. And what fascinates me is that there are times in history where certain groups of people not necessarily all people, certain groups of people think a certain thing because they feel the evidence is compelling for this certain way of thinking about the thing. And there was a time, and in particular, the most interesting of those, the Loch Ness basically is 1930s to present, does not uh, predate the 1930s. There's particularly a time in the early 1970s where a set of people, including reputable scientists and naturalists, are thinking that the Loch Ness monster is a real animal, and literally any day they're going to, they they already convinced themselves that it's real, but they're going to convince all those highfalutin ivory tower stuffed shirt annoying conservative scientist types. They're going to convince them. I, irony, I think it wasn't obvious, and they're going to convince them. They're going to grab them by the scruff of the neck and rub their noses in it. I told you Nessie was real, stupid scientist. Here's Nessie on a plate with a sprig of parsley in its mouth, as Tim Dinsdale said many times. Uh-huh. Um, okay, so that's that bit. <laughs> then we did the whole bit about <laughs> Loch Ness, 
Darren's been to Loch Ness many, many, many times. Yep. Spent months living on the loch, swimming in it, filming there. John, you haven't been to Loch Ness, have you? And by months, you mean days? Yep. <laughs> no, I haven't been to Loch Ness. Although uh, I've been very close. You might um, have flown over it if you've been to northern hmm. Scotland. I've been to Fort William, which is on the fault that Loch Ness is on. It's the other... Yeah. yeah, it's pretty close. It's only a few kilometres away. But <clears> didn't go to it because, well, it wasn't on the itinerary very, very. So, yeah, Long Ness, geographically, geomorphologically, is very interesting. Oh, God, I don't want to go through all this again. I you basically have to. You have to. told the whole geologic story of Loch Ness. So, it can be Loch simplified Ness a bit. It's, it, okay, it's going to be simplified. It's yeah. beautiful and interesting and weird. It's huge. 37 kilometers long at its widest, maybe 1.6 kilometers wide. Not 300 meters deep, as stated here and there in the literature. The maximum depth at the moment is about 230 meters, which is deep enough, we've established. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the water is stained with peat, many sp- peat particles in suspension, which means that it's the color of like tea, as in English tea brown tea without milk in it uh, which means if you go down 50 meters 100 meters there's basically no visibility it's black <clears throat> you, you won't be able to see very far don't think you need to go that deep don't need to go that deep you're right yeah. probably only like 15 meters down 10 yeah. meters down yeah black yeah um now the a lot of the books in particular the skeptic literature says that Loch Ness is a glacial valley and so it's u-shaped in cross-section when valleys are carved out by rivers they are V-shaped in cross-section, and the idea is that a glacial valley, a glacier, like, widens and uh, sort of smooths out a valley, so you get this, like, you know, flat bottom and steep sides. That's what a lot of the literature says about Loch Ness, a glacial valley, but it's, hold on, it's along this gargantuan fault, the Great Glen Fault, which basically splits Scotland in two, Scotland north of the Great Glen Fault, uh, prehistorically, as in like back in the Paleozoic, the Ordovician or something, was part of the same continent as eastern North America. So <clears throat> two, two very different like land masses that are now sutured together. The fault is still tectonically active. There are still earth tremors that happen in, in parts of it. Um, but a lot of the literature, John, did you know this? A lot of the literature <laughs> seems to contradict this because they don't describe features that are consistent with it being a glacial valley. And why do you need it to be a glacial valley when you already know it's a V-shape? It's a, you already know that it's a product of the Great Glen Fault. Um, and some of the structures they talk about. So, so pre-1970s, people thought that the size of the lock were possibly quite complicated. There was like overhanging rocky crags and caves and blind tunnels and such all of which were great places for Nessie to hide if Nessie were real of course and then when a lot of the literature skeptic literature says nah no it's a glacial valley it's got steep sides and a flat bottom it's plain boring doesn't have this stuff <clears throat> can't use that to support Nessie mm. so, well in actual fact some recent studies sonar based studies seem to find, in fact, that there is some complexity. There are crevasses and caves, some of which are pretty big, as in, like, you know, not not gargantuan, but sort of, like, going on for five metres across, ten metres across, that sort of size, which 
I'm not saying I believe in Loch Ness Monster, I do not, but uh, yeah, is sort of in keeping with some of the pro Nessie stuff that's been said about the complexity. And I find that quite an interesting idea. If you were to dive or go down on a submersible with the unaided human eye, you wouldn't be able to see this structure because, as we've said, it's too dark. But there is some topographical complexity there. And it's not just a U-shaped valley. If you stand on the shore, you are looking at a shallow and often, obviously it's so big, all kinds of different stuff happening, but some places the there's like a shallowly um, shelving foreshore. Mm-hmm. Not foreshore. Uh, the, 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 the lake bottom is shallowly descending and then there's like a steep drop-off before you get to the... The, the steep sides so you can look down on water that's like you know a couple of meters deep five meters deep 10 meters deep and you see stones and sediment and rotting vegetation and tangled tree trunks all that sort of stuff that's present in some places around the edge of the lock how did we work in that thing where we were saying you can use you can use the the loch ness to get from north coast uh, east coast to west coast all right Which yeah one? i was saying that you know if you've never bothered to look at Loch Ness on Google Maps or, or similar, you probably should because the, the fault is really obvious. It's a straight line from Inverness on the sort of northeast side to Fort William on the um, southwest side. And it's just this straight line across Scotland. It's really, um, really obvious geological feature. One of the more obvious geological features on Earth, I'd say. Um, and it's, it's quite, uh, yeah. Interesting looking, and Loch Ness is part of this straight line. It's a very, you know, we say it's what thirty six kilometers long and one point six kilometers wide. Yeah, and it's a straight line, essentially. You know, mm. you could see from <clears throat> if you could see that far, which you can't, you could look from one end of the loch to the other, the thirty six kilometers. You know, if you could see past the curvature of the Earth, it's a very straight line. Um, and yeah. you're saying that it's actually used as a yeah. Yes. Yes. To get from the east coast to the west coast, there's a system of connected locks <laughs> and lakes. And here we're talking about locks, not as in the Scottish word for lake, which can be a fjord, can be a sea lock. So L O C H. There's also locks, as in L O C K, as in like the human-made structures that form part of a canal system. There's a system of locks that allow you to use the length of Loch Ness to go from the east coast to the west coast without going via the north coast of Scotland. Mm. Which, by the way, will take you through my favourably named lock, Lock Locky. Lock Locky. <laughs> and I think I'm going to come up with a Lock Locky lizard. <laughs> <laughs> the Lock Locky lizard. Uh, okay, so that's some of the preamble. And it, so it's just an interesting place. And I really like the idea that you can go to parts of Loch Ness and it is quite, it's, it's, it's not as featureless and as barren as has been sort of implied in some of, in some of the literature. There, there is some complexity and some, some cool underwater topography uh, in at least a few places. Oh, um, one other <clears> thing I'll say, just because I am scrolling around on Google Maps while, I'm, while we're talking about it. Uh, Google Maps has good street view stuff and they've even put street view on a boat so if you want to do a tour of Loch Ness you can do it on Google Maps it's like you can see the whole thing you can see all these features except maybe looking in the water but as you say you can't really see in the water anyway it's quite brown and murky mm, mm. yeah yeah I've been on Loch Ness on a on a tour boat and 
small boats a couple of times, visited lots of the famous spots where things are meant to have happened. Mm. So, like I said, I've read these books now, um, and they're all from the past several, well, the past few years. So, Gareth Williams's A Monstrous Commotion, The Mysteries of Loch Ness. This was published in, I'm going to say 2014 as a guess, and it's 2016 as a paperback, 2015. Is that 2015? And this is a pretty substantial book. It's 365 pages. Now, this book is, I'm going to review this on Tetrapods already, so some of the stuff I say here will be repetitive if you read the blog, which should. Um, <clears throat> there was this phase. So you've got, so basically, the, there's like an initial flurry of uh, newspaper reports and claim sightings and stuff that, that, that first make this a known phenomenon in the 1930s. There's, a, there's a, an initial flap, as we say, in the 1930s. Then things are kind of quiet until the 1960s. Then you've got assorted claimed photographs and interesting sightings. And then during the 70s, there is building mainstream interest. And that's when um, there's the first attempts to use like proper technological investigation like sonar and underwater photography and mm -hmm. depth charges to scare the monster to the surface all that <laughs> of stuff. loads of people not 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 kidding that actually happened um loads of loads of stuff <clears throat> happens in the 70s and uh, there's this key phase circa 1972 to circa 1976 where uh, robert rines peter scott a uh, bunch of other people bill egerton they are saying we are literally days away from proving to the world that this creature exists. This culminates in 1975 with the publication In Nature, those of you who don't know, the world's most prestigious scientific journal, with uh, Robert Rines and uh, Sir Peter Scott uh, publishing a brief paper saying the Loch Ness Monster is a new species of animal that requires legal protection, and in order to give it this protection, we need to give it a scientific name, so we call it Nessiteris rhomboptrix, the Ness Monster with the diamond-shaped fins and i'll mention here as i do every single time that whole thing about that name being an anagram for monster hoax by sir peter s really is a coincidence and if you <laughs> think it's not a coincidence well then i cannot congratulate you on your knowledge of peter scott or what he actually said about the Loch Ness monster because these people honestly did believe in the Loch Ness monster as a real animal they weren't just pulling a fast one for shits and giggles <clears throat> so this the, the monster the monstrous commotion gareth williams's book it's pitched as this is the story behind sir peter scott's sir peter scott i think he died i think 1997 very well respected very decorated very sort of establishment figure in the world of natural history zoology <laughs> <laughs> thank you shiloh um uh, he was, you know, co-founder of the World Wildlife Fund, designed the giant panda logo for the World Wildlife Fund, son of the Antarctic explorer, you know, quite a, quite a big deal, author, illustrator, painter, you know, really interesting guy, Sir Peter Scott. And um, to have him promoting the Loch Ness Monster as a, as a real entity... He's got royal connections. He hung out with the royal family. I can tell you today that Prince Philip uh, believes in the Loch Ness Monster as a real thing as a consequence of Sir Peter Scott's um, writings. Um, why did Sir Peter Scott and other people of the time who, you know, you sort of think 
you know, and in everything else, they were pretty sensible, level-headed, conservative mm. people. Why were they so convinced? What was it that led them to, you know, like I say, culminating in the publication of a Nature paper where they truly do say Nessie is real and we need to conserve this creature and study it? Um, Gareth Williams, the author of this 2015 book, used extensively the Scott correspondence and basically showed, you know, the, the backstory to this. And I, I found this really interesting. Um, hadn't really heard that part of the story that much before. Everything I've read about Peter Scott, including Peter Scott's own, I've got several of his books, Travel Diaries, Travel Diaries of a Naturalist and his other books. He just says, I believe in the Nautilus monster and I, and, I, and I accept it as real because I've been convinced by... Uh, the 1957 book More Than a Legend by Constance White uh, he's been convinced by the eyewitness records and stuff but there's more to the story than that and that's what Williams really goes to town on um, this book by Williams is pretty good in terms of that historical background you know it's like documenting and discussing all of this this uh, correspondence which I'll get to in a minute I'm sort of building up to it um, but it's slightly irritating because there's many cases in this book, A Monstrous Commotion, where it reads as if Williams is already pro-Nessie and is not – he thinks that those who have denied or disputed the existence of Nessie are weirdly biased or weirdly negative. Like there's a bit where he – there is actually like one paragraph where he says that, you know, the scientists – at the Natural History Museum in London, because there's a whole story there about the various people, Dennis Tucker and so on at the Natural History Museum. Um, he's, the, Dennis Tucker was pro Loch Ness Monster, but um, uh, ended up being uh, sacked is probably the wrong word. But he, he didn't work for the Loch, he didn't work for the Natural History Museum after a lot of pro Nessie promotion. Um, yeah, William says stuff like like he he says all those sort of stereotypical things against mainstream scientists, the sort of things that cranks do. Though where they say you know I, the the thing the the thing we were alluding to a minute ago, you know those 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 ivory tower short sighted idiots, only you know intellectually cowardly, unwilling to consider unwilling to poke their head above the bastion of their secure jobs and leave their their mm. <laughs> uh, comfortable chairs in their plush offices you know he says something along those lines a few times which i just found completely inaccurate and and and, and unfair uh and in his writing about tim dinsdale one of the most vocal proponents of nessie and i'll talk about get to him in a minute as well um he seems uh williams is oddly sympathetic towards some of dinsdale's stuff like <clears throat> I don't want to don't want to say everything about Dinsdale right now because that's that's the thing I need to come to in a minute. But there's a bit when he's talking about Dinsdale, and he says that uh, he says that Dinsdale suddenly found himself on television talking about the Lost Monster. Like, no, he didn't suddenly find himself on television. He fought tooth and nail over weeks to be heard and contacted everybody he could, wrote to everybody he could think of in order to promote the Lost Monster, and it and and basically made himself famous. Right. So so those things sort of did irk me a little bit about Williams's book. So when I do get around to reviewing it properly, basically, I like it as a chronicle of this backstory uh, of uh, Sir Peter Scott and why Scott and Robert Rhines and 
uh, Roy Mackle and others why why they why they became as convinced as convinced as they did using this correspondence that hasn't been outed before. I like that very much, um, but I, I I'm a little bit wary of it because of this seemingly rather. Uh, credulous pro Nessie stance. So the very end of this book, like I say, 365 pages, it's quite a substantial book. Loads of it's got well referenced, lots of footnotes and stuff. Towards the end, I'm like, so what is he actually going to conclude? Is he going to end it by saying that? And so even today, the experts are unwilling to investigate the possibility of the monster, and she still swimmeth forevermore in the dark, inky depths of the lock. Are we going to get that kind of ending? Or are we going to get him ending saying, so after all this time, they never found anything. There was no evidence for Loch Ness. Everybody that promoted it was like sadly mistaken. And most of them eventually became skeptics because they did. And it all turned out to be a waste of time. Which do you think he ends with? Option one or option two? Pro Nessie or anti Nessie? Well, given what you said, I think he's going to be pro Nessie, but I'm hoping for anti Nessie. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was surprised the ends with an anti Nessie note. And the very last thing... The very last line. <clears throat> Finally, this is a book I've always wanted to write. It's a great... No, that's the wrong line. Um, <laughs> that's, I'm reading the acknowledgements. <laughs> Any regrets? Only that he'd not been better prepared when he saw the torpedo trail. His belief in the monster, just the same as always. It's out there, and in time he'll see it. Back on Colonel Lane's jetty, the light is fading and the wind has picked up. The lock has turned grey and is now ruffled with waves. Beside the jetty, the water has darkened from weak tea to Guinness. That's good writing. And the silver coin that turns into bronze has vanished completely. Also good writing. By the time I'd climbed back up to Colonel Lane's lookout point beside the Scots Pines... Loch Ness looks very different. It's now vast and impenetrable and a place where almost anything could be hiding. Oh. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Maybe I was drunk when I read the end of the book. <laughs> I thought it ended I thought it ended with him saying and in the end it was all a big pile of shit. <laughs> okay, so that was the that was the end of the postscript. <laughs> okay. okay so now let's go forward to the book okay so this is the ending this is the ending and this brings us at last to the big question has Loch Ness ever harboured a large animal species unknown to science now that you have stripped away all the confounders you can see what is left and can give your answer yes or no oh no <laughs> that's the worst ending <laughs> and then I woke up and it was all a dream <laughs> so oh my god Gareth Williams well, okay. In my mind, it was an anti-Nessie ending. <laughs> but I'd forgotten that I was supposed to make up my own mind. Well, having done that, having well, read you did. You did make yeah. up. So that's how, I yeah. Did. So, and the, now, uh, one more thing to say about that book. 2015, it's a contemporary book. It's written in the age of the internet. Uh, it's written in the age in which myself and people like who've said similar things to me have got stuff of written stuff and it's online i found a few places where it's like he deliberately avoided uh, discussing some critiques of some of the lockness evidence that is online not that i'm saying not that i'm doing the alanis morissette where 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 is why is where's my stuff huh why didn't you mention me i'm not doing that but but yeah yeah <clears throat> um so the correspondence then sorry it's if this is where you you're taking it anyway, but yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah. what motivations does it 
So this leads me to the second book. The Man Who Filmed Nessie by Angus Dinsdale. Now, I've already mentioned a Dinsdale, Tim Dinsdale. Oh dear, there's two Dinsdales? Okay. Well, this is his son. Oh, okay. This is an affectionate portrait of Tim Dinsdale written by his son, Angus. Hmm. Tim Dinsdale died... Uh, 1987, I think. <clears throat> and he um, was the most, and still is, the, probably, probably the most influential person, as goes thinking on the Loch Ness Monster. He's one of the main, like, Nessie proponents. <clears throat> and um, where do I start with this? Dinsdale was an aeronautical engineer, who worked for companies like De Havilland and Rolls-Royce. And I'll, I'll come to this bit later, right? This is important. He became convinced there was a Loch Ness Monster. He took to visiting Loch Ness, and then over the rest of his life, so from about 1959 until the late 80s, he visited Loch Ness like at least once a year, and I think... I think in most cases more than once a year. He spent like literally months of his life uh, at Loch Ness. Um, initially, just like commuting, like, driving up there from Croydon or wherever he lived, somewhere somewhere near London. I think it's Croydon. And um, uh, over the years, purchased like a small boat, and then became a an accomplished boat person. <laughs> And uh, then, like, got a bigger boat, and then had a couple of boats, and and by the end of his life was like an accomplished, you know, like a fully uh, sort of comfortable on the water, and you know, living on the water and stuff for weeks at a time. <clears throat> and um, was like convinced right from the start that Nessie was real. He's most famous because in April 1960, on his first, I think his first trip, and he'd only been there for like a couple of days, he filmed. An object moving across, uh, is it Bolan Bay, I think? Um, and he became convinced this was the hump, the hump's back of the monster. Mm-hmm. General thinking today is that he filmed a boat, but he knew this would be a criticism, so he filmed, like the next day, he filmed a boat taking the exact same route. And um, according to him, you can clearly see that the control is a boat and you can, and it doesn't look at all like the monster. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Now there's, I've, I've, I cover this in hunting monsters. It's been written about quite a lot in the various skeptical Nessie literature. The, you can, and you can find it online. This uh, one minute of footage that's meant to be a Loch Ness monsters hump. It almost definitely is a boat. And the reason it looks so different from the boat he filmed the next day is because of very different conditions. Like the the boat was filmed in bright sunlight and it was a white boat. And the the Loch Ness monster that he filmed was filmed in like overcast, poor light, and was yeah. a dark brown boat. <laughs> yeah, it was so, a different boat. It looks different. But <laughs> um, so he got the joint... Air reconnaissance intelligence. This 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 association. This body called Jarek, which is like a World War Two sort of intelligence techie organization. He got them to analyze the footage, and Jarek said that um, that due to the sort of conditions of filming and what they the way what they thought they analyzed, they said it is it's. They said it's an animal object. 
And Dinsdale has written how this supports his view that it was a like the back of a giant animal and other pro Nessie people have also taken this as, you know, Jarek's report says that it's, it's an animal. Um, but it really bugs me that they say it's an animate object because do people not know that animate means moving? <laughs> don't, don't mean it's an animal. It's, it's an animate object. So this Jarek report has never been as concrete as people said it was. And even if, okay, even if they did say it was an animal, it doesn't matter that a body like with relevant expertise it doesn't matter that they say yeah we think it is a Loch Ness monster because how did they actually do that analysis what do you think they actually did I'm not asking that's a rhetorical question I'm not asking you how do you think they actually did it did they like make a digital model of it and recon and 3d print a robot of it or did they you know visit the site and like you know like use trigonometry to work exactly no they eyeballed it yeah. and they said we think based on the speed you've reported based on the location you've reported we think it looks like this vague stupid thing they said an animal object they didn't say it's indisputably the back they weren't they weren't biologists they weren't animal experts we don't really know that whoever analyzed it was like a boat expert or a hydrodynamic expert or anything so i think that that way too much emphasis has been put on the significance of this jarek uh, report and a lot of people who do know what they're talking about who know a lot about boats know a lot about the location have said that dinsdale did film a boat and that you can even see what's probably a single uh what do you call someone who's driving around in a boat the pilot i don't know you can see you can see a person <laughs> i want to say helmsman but i don't think that works when there's just one person you can see some dude in the, in the, in the in in the boat so um so now right the Dinsdale story. This is where the Dinsdale story becomes linked to the other things I've said so far. So I said that Gareth Williams's book, A Monstrous Commotion, is about people like Sir Peter Scott with significant clout going to nature, going to national newspapers, going on you know BBC television and so on, saying Nessie is real. We need to take it seriously. Why did Peter Scott become uh, you know so convinced by the Loch Ness monster? Peter Scott himself said that it was after he read Constance White's 1957 book, More Than Legends, one of the the, the first kind of proper book on the Loch Ness Monster, really. Um, but Williams shows that it was Dinsdale. Dinsdale was so convinced of the Loch Ness Monster <clears throat> uh, after filming this boat that we've just been talking about, his, his April 1960 footage, that... Um, he thought, who should I – Who sh- I need I need to basically shout this from the highest tower. So he immediately, <laughs> on the day that he got his footage, he tele- sent a message <laughs> to the – Facebook <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he tweeted. Uh, is it called telegrammed? When telegraphed? You send – yeah. Is it called telegraphed? You send a beep, 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 beep. You send a telegram. <laughs> You send, you send a message yep. to the British Museum. Uh-huh, okay. And he sent, and like, they didn't know who he was. He's just some guy who's News from, from the world. Sending a message just... saying, just filmed Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> we'll show you footage on return. Uh, you know, you should know because he's thinking, he's thinking this is something they should know because they're going to act on it, yep. which I consider somewhat odd, but, you know, that's what he did. And then 
after doing that, and they like didn't respond. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, dude. Yeah. Yeah. File it, it in the cranks folder. Um, then he thought, who should I contact to, you know, uh, like get more Nessie loving, Nessie coverage? And he thought, who is the most famous animal person in the United Kingdom? Sir Peter Scott. So we know from the correspondence, which Williams writes about, we know that Tim Dinsdale wrote to Sir Peter Scott, said, Sir Peter... And, and bear in mind, Sir Peter Scott is such a busy guy. He has, you know, he has a, he has secretaries that obviously file his correspondence and tell him what he needs to respond to. But Peter Scott is written to Tim Dinsdale said, "Film the Loch Ness Monster. It's actually for real. I want you to take it seriously. Are you on board?" And uh, Sir Peter Scott and Peter Scott's secretary they think well, that's actually quite interesting. We probably should look into this. It just so happens that they're both in London at the same time. As a member of the kind of like old boy network, what people like Peter Scott do is they have lunch in these sort of, you know, London gentlemen's clubs type places. Um, uh, the, the, the thing is called the Savile Club. So, yes. Yes, so Peter Scott will be at the Savile Club at one o'clock on Thursday, the 27th of June, 1961. Or whatever, you know, and, and so Dinsdale, I liked him. I liked him, Dinsdale. He's an interesting guy, but he, he's, you know, he's very enthusiastic. So enthusiastic. He immediately writes back to Peter Scott with a little cartoon of himself, a little stick man with Nessie on a leash thing. We absolutely must meet you. Oh, God. Okay, so so he does meet Sir Peter Scott. And um, by all accounts, Tim Dinsdale was a really nice guy. He was like a really nice person. He was very um, kind of very polite, very well-spoken, very intelligent, very charismatic. And this quite a common thing in the world of weird phenomena. It's like people that are like nice people and very charismatic and intelligent present themselves well. They might believe in the strangest things, but they can still convince at least some other people. Sheerly, sheerly. Yeah. On the sh- on the pa- on the on the basis of like you know how comp- how like personally charismatic they are, and everything you read about Tim Dinsdale and, and you know you can you can find footage of him talking, loads of interviews of him and stuff. He seems like a guy who could convince you that like you know if you asked him, if if you laughed at him saying oh, Loch- why do you believe in Loch Ness Monster a lot of crap he would sort of like you know put his hand on his chin and cross his legs and say well there was a time when I would have said exactly the same as you but mm-hmm. let me tell you that. Time I, I actually went to Longness and um, I spoke to the many people there, the Highlanders, and uh, they told me. Da, 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 and 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 it seems, you know, from from his, like I say, interviews and and writing that he could, yeah, he he was he was persuasive in this in this fashion, and uh, and I think I think he did uh, come across that way. So it's it's his writing to Peter Scott gets Peter Scott uh, interested, and they have a long correspondence. Peter Scott gradually does become convinced there probably is something in it. He does think that the Dinsdale footage is for real. And um, Peter Scott is very busy with things like the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust and the World Wildlife Fund. But during the 70s, uh, Scott organises a scientific symposium in Edinburgh, gets the royal family interested, um, and then... And, and it's all going well, and there's like this groundswell of, of serious scientific interest in the Long Monster. Then you have this interesting thing, which again, um, Williams goes into this in some detail. P- 
Peter Scott then finds he has to start doing damage limitation because Dinsdale is so, um, uh, like, I've forgotten the word, so enthusiastic that yeah. he's writing letters left, right, and center and appearing on the, on the, on the TV and stuff and is almost destroying the kind of slowly, slowly, let's build up a case gradually approach that Peter Scott is advocating. And somehow, and it's, it is thought to be Dinsdale behind the scenes, but somehow news of the um, symposium to be held in Edinburgh is leaked to the press. I'll come back to that story in a minute because that's, that's to do with the, the Rhines Egerton flipper photos. Uh, somehow that story is leaked, the evidence is leaked, and that destroys the attempt of, like, I think it's the Royal Society or something, sort of ruins their efforts to present this evidence scientifically because now it's a splash all over the media. And it's like, we think that you know, Dinsdale gets some of the blame for this. And so Peter Scott is trying to do damage limitation on Dinsdale. It probably wasn't Dinsdale, it was someone else who actually leaked the stuff. So. The Angus Dinsdale book, The Man Who Filmed Nessie, tells all of this from the Dinsdale family side of things. Obviously, it talks about Dinsdale filming the Nessie hump as, you know, obviously the, the Angus Dinsdale follows his father in thinking that it was a, a, an animal they filmed, not a giant unknown animal. Um, Angus Dinsdale says that... that uh, the actual version of the footage shows that you can even see the animals like paddle strokes as it's swimming along, mm -hmm. which just think about that for a minute. Streamlined aquatic animals. Think of like a duck or a porpoise or something. Do you really see like sort of, whoosh, whoosh, sort of waves of foam as they paddle? No, generally not because they don't really just, they don't, you know, evolution has bestowed upon them the ability to not disrupt water in that way they want to be streamlined and slip through the water so that's a that's a bit odd um but it's but it is i liked the book because it is very much a sort of human portrayal obviously of of this of uh tim dinsdale and what you wouldn't know from all the other stuff written about dinsdale or by dinsdale you wouldn't know that that his investigations of loch ness <clears throat> was very much like a family affair so, for example, you know, I've got family. I've just come back from China. I don't like being away from my family for like two or three weeks at a time. I find that quite difficult. I miss them. So it's like, here's Tim Dinsdale buggering off to Loch Ness every single year for like the whole of the summer for months at a time. Mm. That seems like a bit of an odd thing to do if you've got, I think, I think, I think he and his wife had like four kids or something. But, but this book, it turns out that, you know, they kept, the children were involved and the kids all grew up to be Nessie spotters and the kids all went to the, to the lock and the, the kids believed in Nessie and, and Angus, who was like 10 years old at the time, a lot of this was happening, or some of this was happening. I guess he, I guess he wasn't 10 years old all the time. But he <laughs> says <laughs> he, he had this tradition where he would like go to the supermarket and, and buy the biggest carrot <laughs> to give to his dad and his dad would would give that to Nessie when he actually did finally finally meet Nessie. So um so I like I like that aspect of the story. So so if Dinsdale got Scott involved, Dinsdale was super passionate, really um you know uh what's the word again? I've forgotten it again. Really um what's the word I used a minute ago? Enthusiastic. Yeah hey, enthusiastic hey <laughs> He was super enthusiastic about Nessie and he went to Loch Ness 
thought he filmed it, thought he filmed the hump. He did have two other sightings later in life, one of which was the swan-like neck thing, which he, he says he saw from when he was on a boat, and I've forgotten the other one. But um, So why... So, but, but bear in mind, Dinsdale has gone to Loch Ness to film Nessie and films Nessie. Why did he go to Loch Ness? Why was he so committed to uh, pr- the promotion of Nessie in the first place? Well, this is the bigger Tim Dinsdale story. So Dinsdale, like I said, really nice guy. Seems to be a very personable, very uh, compelling, charming man. But also seems to have been incredibly impressionable. Very... Um, I feel a bit mean saying this, given that I've just said some nice things about him. It just seems to me to be very easily persuaded as to this. You know, I, I don't know whether it pertains to anything else, but certainly in the case of the Loch Ness Monster, he says, so here you have to go back and you have to read Dinsdale's, Tim Dinsdale's The Loch Ness Monster, which I've also recently read. I've, I've read it before, like years and years ago. It's from 19... 19- it was first published in 1961, <laughs> and then this is a third edition, 1976. So to get a book to third edition, Dinsdale, right, he's an aeronautical engineer. So he's like, you know, an engineer, and engineers are the smartest people in the world, as you know. <laughs> he's sitting down, and he's reading a magazine called, I think it's called Everyone's Magazine, or... <clears throat> Let's just find the title of the magazine is really important it's everybody's everybody's magazine 21st february 1959 and he reads a magazine article and the magazine article is written by alex campbell and i'll come back to him at some point as well because he's important in the longness story and um then they'll read this reads this article just like out of you know whimsy sort of just his eyes glance across the page you're not interested in longness monster he just happens to read this He's like, what? What? A monster? A monster in Loch Ness? And, it's, it's the, and the stories, the stories are com- jolly compelling, jolly compelling. They talk about it having humps on its back and flippers and a neck and it swims. And it's, my goodness, my goodness. So, he, so basically he reads his magazine article and he's like, oh my God, there's really something in this. And uh, he writes how he takes down some notes on the... Um, anatomical traits described by the different witnesses and he now he does something very scientific that only an engineer could do he takes them he takes them he works out some averages mm-hmm. so so if one person said the monster was 35 foot long another one said it's 40 foot long another one said it's 50 foot long another one said it was 76 foot long you add those together and you divide them by another number <laughs> then you get a measurement right so yeah. one person said there was one hump one person said there was two humps. One person said there were three humps. One person said there were four humps. Add them together, divide them by another number. Who knows what the number is? It's random. <laughs> yeah, an average. Which number? So it's neck length. It's the same for neck length. It's the same for... So, okay, that's so... So now we know, based on all of these sightings, we know it's a mathematical fact this creature is 42 foot long. It's got two and a half humps. Two and a half humps, it's yeah. It's got neck... Six and a half foot long. It's got four paddles. Oh, this person, oh, this four person, and three quarters. This person saw it at eleven o'clock in the morning. This one saw it at eleven thirty-four in the morning. This one saw it at twelve oh one in the morning. This one saw it at two o'clock in the afternoon. Add those up. The monster is in is mostly observed at eleven 
51 yep. in the day. So it's clearly like a morning creature. And this person saw it at Drumnod Rocket. This person saw it at Inverness. This person saw it in Borland Bay. This person saw it at Inverfarragraig. Well, if I draw those together, it's generally in this part of the lock. So now Dinsdale is convinced there's something in this. And, okay, again, I don't want to be really mean to Tim Dinsdale, but it's like he read the article, he did this, he drew up some averages. This seems to have been sufficient to convince him there was something in it, which... (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying without being super mean? It's like, really, that was the thing that convinced you there was something in it? So, um... Yeah, so I think that... Um... Clever people can suffer from this in that they think that people are being truthful a lot of the time. Now, some of the reports of Loch Ness are people who, Loch Ness Monster, are people who genuinely thought something, but there are people who are just lying, right? No one likes to say it because it seems rude, and there are lots of, but there are clever people out there that just don't really consider the possibility that a good number of these reports are just lies, Mm -hmm. and they are designed to make the thing seem real. And they yep. come up with little details, which make it seem... Why would you even make that up? Well, to make it seem real, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they don't take this into account. So if they get together a bunch of reports, and I think he does these averages to convince himself that, you know, there's not like crazy outliers here. They all sort of seem to be roughly this, describing the same sort of thing. I think that's the sort of the thought process. I think it's got to do with just taking what people say on face value, right? Right, yeah. And and, dis- and not really allowing for the fact that people are deliberately muddying your data. And, so, yeah. and uh, pe- even people who are genuinely thought they saw something will take bits from what they've heard from other people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. make it fit that a little <clears throat> bit because people have to try and make something fit when they're trying to think about some- what something is. I think the fact that Dim- uh, Tim Dinsdale was... A uh, you know a, a very like honest, uh, pleasant, charismatic man of of great integrity. Everyone everyone who met him sort of you know was convinced by you know he's he's an honest chap. He's a, he's a good good person. Uh, maybe he assumed that everything he everything he read and everyone he spoke to was you know the same report reporting the same same sorts of stuff. And uh, maybe his inherent you know personality, what he was like. Uh, and he, he says he says in in his in his book he, he I think he did three or four books I've got all of them but he um he says that you know this this isn't reported by criminals or charlatans but by good honest you know housewives and, and, uh, and water bailiffs and, you know, and and dog workers you know. so honest seen by honest honest people who've got no benefit they derive no benefit from from lying why why would they why would they possibly lie and um so he's he's convinced by this which I which I do consider. You know, like I say, somewhat odd and a bit, a bit of a fundamental weakness. With all due respect to him, and um, so he charges up to Scotland to see the Nessie for himself. <laughs> now, there's two interesting takes on what happens next, and uh, so what you have Dinsdale himself saying, and what you have his son Angus Dinsdale saying is, so he's convinced Dinsdale become becomes convinced that if He's to, if he's to see the Loch Ness Monster, he's got to record it on film. So he's got to be in a permanent state of readiness. So he sets up in his car a 
camera of some form i've forgotten the details of the camera but they are all known he sets up a camera like in the passenger seat filming out the window so all he has to do is stop and he's, he's basically his car is like a mobile <clears throat> you know um, camera platform and um um so carefully and slowly methodically you know very sort of doing this in a careful methodical way you know visits the lock stops at a few places scans the water and uh and uh, he's, he's, this is this is April 1960. Now his first his first trip. That 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 magazine article, not 1959. He um, thinks he sees something unusual on the lock, so he films it. It's, it's quite interesting. It's sort of a ring of water. Films it. Films it. Oh, okay, it's rocks. Right. So, so that's a waste of time. So day two, day two, driving around. Driving along, da, 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 da. <laughs> suddenly see something. No, this isn't the same as yesterday, is it? No, oh, hmm. seems to be. Well, seems to be moving. Start filming it. So starts filming it. Oh, my goodness, my goodness, something something quite interesting here. Okay, okay, keep it together, Tim. Keep it together. So slowly, 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 film, film, film. It's a camera where you have to you have to wind. It's got a clockwork motor, so uh-huh. you turn the handle to film, and then you have to stop and. <laughs> One of the cockroach and then do some more filming. So keep it, keep it, keep it together, Tim. Keep it together, Tim. Filming this, oh, I think, I think it's a monster. It looks like so the brown peaked back reminds me of an African buffalo, or oh, it's got it's got a ridge of like neural spines, like a, like an, the back of an underfed horse. He said, large large blotch on the left hand side. So it's just definitely an animal. It's sort of like piebald coloring. Keeps filming, keeps filming, and. Uh, my God, I've got that! I've got the longest monster on film. This is huge, and uh, the creature disappears from view in the lock. So, oh my God, finally done it! So brilliant, brilliant. Goes back home, so it goes back to the hotel rather immediately. Like I said, immediately telegraphs the natural the British Museum of Natural History, or the British Museum as it was at the time, and uh, tells everybody in the hotel, "I filmed Nessie." <laughs> By now, they're all like on board with. They think that Loch Ness monster's for real as well so uh yeah so that's it <laughs> right so that's the story that dinsdale and, and angus dinsdale say slow and steady slow and steady filming slow controlled burst like a machine gun firer he says slow and steady right now the book that i can't find ronald Binns's the loch ness mystery reloaded which is probably the loch ness monster book i've enjoyed the most out of all of them so far and i'll talk about that in a minute but loch ness mystery reload tells this whole story in a somewhat different light so first of all bins so bins wrote this book in 1983 the loch ness mystery solved i think it's probably the best and most important book on loch ness because it says that all of the evidence compiled by dinsdale and constance white and the others is pretty much a pool of crap it's like you look at all the eyewitness encounters they probably are mistakes they're either hoaxes or they're people seeing birds or swimming deer or seals um which we all know can be in the lake at times and if you look at the writings of people like constance white and dinsdale they took the original sketches and modified them redrew them for their own works so in dinsdale's the loch ness monster 
Let's see if I can find an example just by flicking through. No, I can't because that's not how things work when you're podcasting. And there's, they won't be able to see it anyway. Won't be able to see it anyway. So what a waste of time. Okay, here's one example. So Greta Finley's sketch. Mm-hmm. Now you'll see how Dinsdale's drawing of Greta Finley's sketch shows a two-humped, long-necked creature with two horns. Yeah. But Greta Finley's original sketch, which I don't have the hand does not show two humps and shows the creature facing the opposite way from this and shows the creature near a tree and basically shows a deer in the water. (laughs) A swimming, probably a swimming, like, young stag with, like, short prong-like antlers. And again and again, you see that people like Dinsdale took the sketches, twigged them a little bit to fit with the sort of identical picture that had been built up as long as not there. And, um... Yeah, modified them to make them fit this this right, particular take on, on Nessie. So Ben says that, you know, so not only was Dinsdale quite impressionable, he'd already like sort of read this article, convinced himself Nessie was on the basis alone. He goes up to Loch Ness, he's already like a he's already like a committed believer. He goes and speaks to Alex Campbell, who I said I'd talk about and I'll get to him next. Um he visits the key sighting places and uh, and he describes dinsdale says how he's so excited that he's like let, he's staying in some one of the hotels around the shores of lock he's he's sort of like he's having fitful sleep he's sort of waking up at four o'clock in the morning and unable to get back to sleep and he's like dreaming about nessie and and uh, basically you've got to imagine that he's in some like phase of like nessie obsessed delirium <laughs> and it's, so so it's not that it's not slowly slowly tim calm keep it keep it calm keep it together tim it's like <laughs> it's, it's <Aunt> Nessie. <laughs> oh no it's rocks it's rocks oh god <laughs> it's, it's <Aunt> Nessie. <laughs> oh, film, film, oh it's a boat oh shit oh, no oh it's definitely nessie um uh Oh, <laughs> it's unless he's just. I really think he wasn't. He wasn't calm, collected. He's like he he talks how he talks how he um. So when I said that he sees the 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 humped back like an underfed horse or like an African water buffalo. <laughs> he's driving along right it's not like driving along 30 miles an hour I can stay under the speed limit to him oh is that Nessie better pull up just in case that's not what happens it's actually like driving along it is that oh shit it's Nessie 70 miles an hour literally literally swerves across a grassy lawn so pulls up at the side of the road and then starts filming <laughs> the time I said Jarek confirmed that the um <laughs> Jarek confirmed that the the timing showed that it was like consistent with an animate object <clears throat> but they didn't take into account the pauses when he has to stop winding the he has to stop um rotating the film and he has to <clears throat> wind the clockwork motor and if you take account of that, it makes the 
movement of the object slower and makes it exactly the same as the control, the boat that was filmed the next day. I mean, and bear in mind, as I said, there's already reasons for thinking it is a boat anyway, based on the way it looks. He really should have used a boat with a dark brown reddish or reddish hull to conform to the <clears throat> object <laughs> that yeah. he filmed. So, so I think I think on balance, you know, all these things basically add up to Tim Dinsdale not being not being calm, collected and sceptical and scientific and having the sort of level headed, you know, practical approach, but instead of being like oh I, I don't like to say it, but you know, basically so over keen he sort of deluded himself that, that it was real before he saw anything he then went to a lot of trouble to sort of immerse himself in the world of the Loch Ness Monster as soon as he arrived in uh, <clears throat> the region and therefore was primed to if he sees something on the lock he's going to think it's Nessie and and we know that happens from this first thing he films which which proves to be, I think, water breaking against rocks close to the shore. But then the second thing he sees, oh, my, oh my God, it's Nessie! And it's not slow. Quite a desperate, panicky few seconds where his, his heart is beating out of his chest and he's like super excited and uh, super convinced that he's, <clears throat> that he's succeeded. So I said that that 1959, this is going back to that 1959 magazine article, which I think that convinces him, it's written by Alex Campbell. So... Alex Campbell was a water bailiff, Scottish water bailiff, who uh, claimed over the years to have seen Nessie something like 14 times over the years. And um, um, Dinsdale went to visit him. And uh, he, during the 70s, as the Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau, various different names this, this body had over the years, but uh, uh, um, Campbell would like go and visit that. And he was like, when he showed up, it was like uh, Jesus. It was like Loch Ness Jesus. Oh my God, Alex Campbell, the guy behind it. The you know he's he's like a suit wearing, tie wearing, flat cap like salt of the earth Scotsman. Uh, he's the quintessential gentleman Highlander, and you know very softly spoken, very slow, methodical kind of you know like man of few words. But when he speaks, you know. He's when he speaks, he says words of such wisdom uh, held in high regard by all the Loch Ness investigation bureaus. You know, Dinsdale went and sought him out <clears throat> to talk about his Loch Ness sightings. So Campbell wrote this article in everybody's magazine that, that, that convinced him. But Campbell wasn't just a water bailiff and he wasn't just like a Scottish Highlander, wh- whatever that is. He was a journalist. Now, right, <laughs> okay, so wait a minute. So a journalist, a, 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 it was a, um, a correspondent for, the, I think, the Inverness Courier, I think it's called. He was the, he was basically our man at Inverness. He was like our Loch Ness correspondent. <clears throat> wait a minute, don't you think it's just a teensy bit suspicious that the guy who makes a living from selling stories about the Inverness area is also the one who uh, is repeatedly writing about Loch Ness, seeing the Loch Ness monster, reporting on the Loch Ness monster. It's almost as if he made a living from it. And almost as if, just, could it possibly be that he in some way benefited from Loch Ness and Loch Ness monster being famous? I don't know. I'm just going to throw that idea out. So... <clears throat> And I think I think to such what, a like, cynic, such a cynic. 
uh, I'm the worst person. So to again, you know, he seems to have been a you know quite a you know, comp- compelling, you know, pleasant, intelligent man who you know you. He, he, whenever he told his story about the Loch Ness monster, it was the most famous one is um, uh, for, for where where his his cottage was, which which I've which I've been to. There's like um, there's there's a river that that joins the lock at that point, and <clears throat> there's a point where if you stand on the banks, you can see like up a length of part of the lock or down the lock. I can't remember actually, and um, you know he describes how he's standing there and. And um, in the morning, as the mist shredded away, this, <laughs> don't do a Scottish accent. I can't bloody do it. Uh, uh, wrong part of Scotland. Sorry, sorry, Scottish people. Um, I see this great beast of, you know, thirty feet uh, out of the out of the water. Its huge neck, <clears throat> and um, it was Nessie herself, uh, or it might have been a cormorant. Um, <laughs> but he changed. He changes his stories. He changed his stories over the years, but um, Alex Campbell as like the like daddy of the at least part of the the Loch Ness mystery. Um, again, compelling, intelligent person, but shouldn't have just been accepted at face value as as the guy that really had the goods and really had had all these sightings. And really had what he had no interest in it. He just honestly happened to just stumble into the Loch Ness monster on however many occasions. I think no, this is exactly the sort of person that you should have been quite sceptical of. And um, again, I don't have the Ronald Bins 2017 book to hand, but um, he does have a chapter on Campbell and um, how his story did change over time, and how he was not an unbiased reporter of events <laughs> so add all this together um f- finally i'm gonna finish we, we we come up to this period of of the 70s between like i say between about 72 and 76 when robert rines of the what's it called the oh god boston science academy science science oh <laughs> <laughs> <Hi>, yes <laughs> <laughs> the B-S-A-B-A-S-A-S-A. Robert Rhines was this guy who sort of like appeared out of nowhere from America. Uh, Constance White and others said that if if we Scottish and or British people don't don't you know pay particular enough attention to what's happening at Loch Ness, then then um you know if we don't grab the beastie by the tail and you know prove it's real then some american bastards will come in and take it from us <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly what happened so <clears throat> uh, roy mackle a biochemist based at university of chicago who today is he's not around anymore he died uh, early 2000, I think, but, but he he wrote several books on mystery monsters, including he did a book called The Monsters of Loch Ness, very strange book that I won't talk about today. But um, uh, uh, Roy Mackle and Robert Rhines both came in from North America, became interested in Loch Ness, and um, managed to like they came in with some fairly serious money. They used like new innovative side scanning sonar and. Uh, t- tow fish 
submersible sonar devices to um, collect information on the lock. They thought they were successful in getting like sonar blips that they thought were evidence for gigantic animals. And um, <clears throat> they did um, also deploy underwater photography. And uh, in 72 and in 75, uh, Robert Rines and Bob Egerton and their team, they did get these various photographs that they thought were photos of the um, the, the Nessie, the Loch Ness Monster. So they got a what they thought was a two flippers and they thought they got a head, like a gross misshapen lump with spikes sticking out of it. And they thought they got a body and a neck. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Uh, and I've I've told the story of these many times. I've written about them at Loch Ness and spoke uh, te- I've written about them at Tetrapod Zoology even, and uh, spoken about them at TetZooCon and whatnot. So the the flipper photos almost definitely show the diamond shaped mark made by the metal rig attached to the camera itself as it rested on the rock floor, and then someone saw that diamond shaped marking and then physically modified the actual photographs. They actually painted on the photographs to create the diamond shaped flippers. These flippers, by the way, are meant to be about two point four meters long. So those flippers ain't meant to be small. It's meant to be a huge animal. The gargoyle, so-called gargoyle's head photo is supposed to be the monster's creature with its open mouth and with sort of like snorkels or horns on its head. Uh, it was worked out exactly where that photograph was taken. It was taken at a point when the camera, when a swell on the water meant the camera was like rocking up backwards and forwards in the water. <clears throat> this is at night, at like one o'clock in the morning or something. And at the point where the photograph was taken because the camera is triggered to take a photo once it comes into contact, obviously, with the nearby object. The lock floor had a big, gnarly stump, a wooden stump there, which Dick Rayner and other people retrieved. They called, it, they called it Ralph for some reason. I don't know why. But Ralph the stump looks suspiciously like the gargoyle's head photo. And then the final thing, the body with the neck, was also filmed, was also photographed when the camera was rocking backwards and forwards. And they reckon that it also is a piece of wood. And you can tell from the... You can work out the distance from the camera to the object because of how much light is on it. You can work out approximately, you know, according to how far the flash travels in the dark water of the lock you can work out that the object was pretty close like within two meters away you can then work out roughly how big it is and unfortunately it's not a 15 meter long monster it's like a one and a half <laughs> meter long wood-like object so i think it's likely that it is actually a piece of wood uh, but it's on the basis of the flipper photos in particular taken in 1975 that scott and Rhines published their nature paper uh, which in some ways is the denouement is the sort of the big uh, like peak of this entire phase. Amazing they got this paper into nature. Um, <clears throat> Nicholas Witchell, the journalist uh, who um, today is best known as the, the BBC's royal family correspondent. So whenever they have some breaking story about some royal family person getting married or something they wheel out nicholas witchell who's now like in his 70s and it's sort of a bit of a joke oh nicholas witchell there was a, did you ever see the thing where um prince charles and his two sons were on a skiing holiday and they had to stop to do a photo opportunity and of course the bbc wheel out nicholas witchell and witchell was shouting across the alpine 
icing. So, uh, Prince Charles, do you uh, do you like skiing? And, uh, <laughs> and then the, the Prince Prince Charles didn't realise how close the microphone was. So he says to one of I don't know, Harry or William, whatever. One says, "Ah, oh, Witchell, I hate that man." <laughs> And then the story became, the story reported by all the news media became Prince Charles <laughs> declares hatred for Nicholas <laughs> Anyway, Nicholas Witchell was a law student in the 70s and um, actually wrote a book called The Loch Ness, I don't have it to hand, The Loch Ness Story. And, <clears throat> uh, and his book came out in about the same week that that nature paper came out. So his book says that I've got to get it. I've got to get it off the shelf because the, the, the opening paragraph is again crucial to everything I'm saying here about, about people believing that, Oh my God, we've, we've done it. We've finally done it. We've, <clears throat> Oh my God, there's so much, Uh, oh, well, okay. The blurb on the back of the book says, Nessie, fact or fiction, the legend dates back 1,400 years. The worldwide fascination began in 1933, but it's only in recent years that science, with a capital S, has started to take serious note of the sonar charts and underwater photographs of Loch Ness. The facts of the mystery suggest the existence in an overpopulated island in the civilised Western world of a species of unknown age and an animal which may be the the only living survivor from the age of the dinosaurs. Okay. The only living survivor from the age of the dinosaurs. Only. Life went extinct. Everything has gone extinct. So this, I'm looking at the revised and updated edition, which is modified relative to the original. This is published in 1989. But the original 1974 edition, which I have, but it will take me a minute to dig it out, so I'm not going to bother. It starts by saying that the book you are reading now tells the story of how one of the greatest mysteries of our age is about to be resolved literally any day now. Yes, it's true. Loch Ness Monster is real. We know it's real because they photographed it. And that's how the book starts. <clears throat> so that also yeah like i say that's so that links to this this uh crucial um period so <clears throat> so peter scott became convinced by um tim dinsdale tim dinsdale as we've already established became convinced because he was extremely impressionable and shouldn't have sh- shouldn't have basically took this story on hook, line and sinker, really shouldn't have done, should have been more critical. So what about, so Robert Rines, now Robert Rines, in responsible for bringing in all this tech and for doing this underwater photography and sonar and everything, um, the Loch Ness Monster literature says, Dr. Robert Rines, um, pioneering inventor, explorer, awesome dude, like, head of the, Again, the, the body that I can't remember the name of, the Boston Boston Academy of Applied. I think it's Boston Academy of Applied Sciences. That sounds about right. Okay, mm-hmm. so this guy sounds like wow. I've heard of MIT. I've heard of uh, what's the place at Berkeley called? The Los Angeles School of the you know of the. Are you talking about the rocket lab or I'm thinking of like famous like science innovation laboratory type yep. places. Okay. 
the, the thing is, the, you've heard of the thing thing at Berkeley. You've heard of the the Rockefeller Center. <laughs> well, now you've heard of the Boston Bell Labs. Labs. I say Bell Labs. Bell Labs. You've heard of the uh, Guadalajara Institute of like technological. Wow. Now there's the Boston Academy of Applied Sciences. Wow. Okay. So you know you naturally assume this is pretty cool. These you know some serious. There's some serious money here. There's some 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 smart people here. Okay. Turns out. <laughs> turns out there's no such place <laughs> and if you write to them it's like uh boston's a hoax <laughs> boston, boston is just it's just a uh, uh robert rhines is a patent clerk and a lawyer and like okay i i'm assuming this is legally safe to say but isn't actually like a phd scientist and this Boston Academy of Applied Sciences is like his house or something. It's that. It's that kind of deal. Mm-hmm. It's like. It's like. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, here I am ensconced in Tetsu Towers, but um, <laughs> it's like it's. It was made to sound like it's some. Um, like I say, it honestly is made to sound like it's MIT or something. Is or you know the Boston Technology Center where it's. It's, it's meant to sound like a proper prof- professional body when really it's just him. It's a patent clerk who's a sci- who's a science amateur who has dabbled in invention and got and has got some like you know wealthy friends and they've they've invent they've knocked together some robots and some cameras and that sort of stuff. But um, it's definitely made to sound less. It's it's definitely less like technically proficient and scientifically reputable. That's that's basically what I'm what I'm trying to say. And I don't mean any offence by that. I just mean it's is def they definitely tried to make it sound more sciencey and professional than it was so <clears throat> so there you go um and did they find nessie did they prove that there was a nessie in the end how does our story end well it doesn't um in the Loch Ness Mystery Reloaded by Ronald Bins. Like I say, the book I can't talk about, so I've somehow misplaced my copy. It's sort of a long-form appendix to his 1982 The Loch Ness Mystery Solved. It discusses all the things that have happened since he said, you know, he said this this sighting can be explained in this way. This person's biography needs to be reinterpreted this way according to this new information we've got um it's it's very it's very strong on all those things he's very kind to uh, my book hunting monsters he quite he quite likes it he uh, quotes sections of it but in the age of the internet the arguably the most influential person as goes Loch Ness is a blogger a man called Roland Watson who runs a blog I think it's just called the Loch Ness Monster and is as frothing at the mouth pro Nessie as you can possibly be and is also super aggressive about it. I've met him a couple of times and, you know, got on okay with him in person, but the stuff he's written is really quite offensive. He talks about skeptics of Nessie as being like uh goose-stepping fascists <laughs> or something and wearing jackboots and uh, the you know has, has written long sort of sort of character assassination takedowns of people like ronald bins and uh 
I think he's even written some critical stuff about some of my things because obviously he just disagrees with them flat out. Mm. Um, and has, 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 has done some interesting like biographical investigation of, of people like Dins, Din, Tim Dinsdale and you know various various key sightings, but um, is not really a force for good. But given that his stated aim is, and he said somewhere recently, Roland Watson, he said that um, that. Quite a few of the Loch Ness proponents fr- from the old days, including Nicholas Witchell, Dick Rayner, Adrian Shine, they started out as, you know, they became interested in the Loch Ness Monster because they, they, they thought this it was for real. They believed in the Loch Ness Monster. And then over the years, their belief diminished and then eventually they became sceptical and then they became arch sceptics. And today they're like, you know, the most sceptical people about the Loch Ness phenomenon. Well, that will not be happening with me. <laughs> he actually said, so I'm like, wow, you're the best kind of rational thinker the one who has an, an un, a, a fixed non-movable position yeah um what i did like about um gareth williams's book because he says a couple of times that he quotes a nessie proponent i forgot who it is but he but they became more skeptical over the years and he makes a point of quoting them saying that when the facts change i change my opinion what do you do and it's and like that's the right way of thinking about things watson has deliberately stated several times that that will not happen to him he will not be changing his mind so nessie well forever man nessie forever i don't care if the lock is drained and found <laughs> to be empty i'll still believe in you nessie <clears throat> so i think you know that's <laughs> we've got a pretty good train of the people that how this modern nessie came to be and the important people there. I think the Dinsdale is fairly easy to understand in many ways. He's an engineer. I mean, engineers tend to be very bright, but the things they deal with aren't deceptive. (laughs) And so they work with what they have, right? And therefore... um, you know, I think engineers are prone to becoming cranks when they move into mm. um, areas where you need scepticism. So are a lot of the scientists that don't consider um, the messiness of evidence. Physicists are famous for it as well. Um, I think he's less of a mystery. He just sort of got bitten by the bug. He thought it was real. There's enough there if you sort of ignore the deceptiveness of people and the mistakenness of people to keep the dream alive a little bit. Um, Peter Scott is more interesting. And what's going on there? And I wonder, because he's so into conservation, right, is there some sort of motivation there? I don't mean deliberate but Mm. to like the idea of endangered rare animals in places Mm. because it gives you a reason to preserve nature and be more careful right like you know if we just keep doing this and look we've all there's Loch Ness and we we might go extinct before we even see it Mm. right that sort of and it's it's amazing and sort Mm. of there's this sort of motivation to be predisposed to ideas like this because it 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 feels like a good um publicity thing for conservation and or it emphasizes the value of conservation i guess you're exactly right that's exactly what he did 
Yeah. So bear, bear in mind that him becoming interested in the Loch Ness Monster is happening exactly the same time as he's creating co- or co-creating the World Wildlife Fund. So there's some publicity literature where they're like, hey, we're this new conservation body, the World Wildlife Fund, we're going to be the best conservation body, we need your help. Look at look at what we're doing. We're doing like you know we're saving giant pandas, saving the tiger. We're also saving things that are, are really exciting, like Loch Ness monster, which is a thing, mm. is for real. So and there's actually like I, f- I think it's like a Christmas card or something. There's a couple of because like I said, Scott was an artist as well as a yeah, personality and um, conservationist. He he like did artwork that's got literally giant panda, tiger, Loch Ness monster. Uh, which you know, and the thing we say about the conservation of tigers and giant pandas is their flagship or umbrella species. If you save them and save their habitat, then you automatically save like a thousand other things. So you could say he was making the same case for like we need to preserve the this aspect of British ecology and natural history. Save the Loch Ness monster, you save the whole of the Loch ecosystem, the Highland ecosystem. Yeah, it's also got the advantage that yeah, it is British, right? Because tigers and giant pandas and a lot of the charismatic megafauna is somewhere else, mm. and you uh, you're going to want something a bit closer to home, aren't you? Uh, you got badgers, I guess, but uh, uh, you know, you, something a bit more spectacular would be great. Well, for a, for a, like a you know a, a mostly British audience, um, yeah, a lot of British wildlife feels pretty. like overly familiar. You know, like even our most exotic animals, like oh, yawn, like, yeah. You know, Badgers and foxes and deer are so super familiar. So it's like, hold on, we've actually got possibly among the most exotic things in the world. We can't be complacent. We mustn't just think we've got to be telling people in India and China to protect their stuff. Hey, 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 we've got to, we've got to do our work here on our own doorstep. Maybe that's some. Yeah. yeah, and you don't. I mean, you don't seem to see much of this in modern conservationists. You know, they're not. They don't seem to be particularly interested in cryptozoology. Oh, probably because it's just got the the, <laughs> the taint of complete pseudoscience, which it possibly didn't have back in the sixties mm. and seventies. Mm. Um, so, you know, conservationists might have been more more interested back then. I think you do see more interest in that sort of thing, especially from people that were were working back then, don't you? Yeah, well, you do because if you you only have to go back, you know, to the fifties and sixties. When basically that's when modern conservation, conservation biology, conservation movement, conservation biology as an area of study and the whole conservation movement itself, when they become uh, like things, when they, I hate saying that that all the time, it becomes a thing. When they become like valid movements, it, it emerges from people who of the previous two or three decades are basically either hunters or explorers or they're journalists. So people like David Asper, Gerald Durrell, Ivan Sanderson, mm-hmm. um, that they they come from a world where they've like been exploring parts of the world that even into even into the 1950s, 60s are still considered. You know, there's still dark parts of Africa, and there's still bits of the Amazon we haven't seen. They're still saying that in the 50s and 60s. Um, that is where the conservation movement is coming from. So they were people that literally had been in places where they'd heard stories about mystery animals and yes, we want to save the Amazon rainforest because it's home to blah, 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 blah. But it also may be home to this creature I heard about, the Mapinguari or the whatever. Name your, name your, name your monster from your tropical 
yeah. region. So, so yes, not a coincidence. Gerald Durrell did write a book on um, cryptozoology, but apparently he abandoned it when he heard about Bernard Hooverman's is on the track of unknown animals published 1958 in English. David Attenborough wrote a book on mystery animals in the sixties. I've forgotten the name of it. It goes with the TV series. Um, yeah. So, so I, I do think, and obviously as we've seen Peter Scott also interested in mystery creatures. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of like why this idea seems fairly obvious to me apart because I didn't know about a lot of those examples. Uh, but I think it's in, like, mystery books from the 70s and 80s. They actually sort of talk about this sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think that's something that might get a bit lost, that the early conservationists and cryptozoology actually <coughs> shared interests and goals in common and were the same people in some respects. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I think that was, uh, well, I, I don't know because I wasn't listening to it. I was too busy talking. But uh, So that's a sort of potted, interconnected history of various characters involved in the Loch Ness story. Obviously, that's not everything. There's loads more stuff. I mean, that was everything from, that was stuff to do with the 60s, 70s, creeping into the 80s a little bit as well, but it wasn't the stuff from the 30s, which is obviously the origin stuff, the Spicer story, that sort of thing. Mm. Hugh Gray photo. Um, maybe we'll do this another time. But there's, like I say, I don't feel too ashamed in reading all these awful books on Loch Ness, so I do, I do quite like them. And um, like I say, I've got to review all of them. My plan is to review them at Tetrapod Zoology, uh, probably starting with the Ronald Bins, the Loch Ness Mystery Reloaded, which I personally find to be the most interesting, the best of them. But I did enjoy, I enjoyed Angus Dinsdale's The Man Who Filmed Nessie. I, I do like the, the Tim Dinsdale story. And I didn't so much like Gareth Williams' is A Monstrous Commotion, but I, I did enjoy the the uh, the correspondence angle on, on the Peter Scott archives, which hadn't been done before. Mm. So, yeah. so good original research, but not... yeah. Uh, yeah, the angle you would have liked on it. Yeah, when I when I do write my review, I'll find those offensive paragraphs that do that do feel very tinfoil hatty. They do feel very like anti science and surprise me. It's like you just don't need to do that. Doesn't 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 do you any favors. Just make you look like you're on the side. Like I said, Tim Dinsdale found himself <laughs> found himself in the studio. No, he didn't. He'd written to everybody. He'd he'd flipping sent a telegram. Ram to the British Museum. Well, that, that's a weird kind of arrogance. It's like, oh, they must hear about this. Well, creature. yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Like, but he wins this 1960, right? Yeah. Um, it'd be interesting knowing his background a bit more. I mean, you've read the book, but um, how posh is he? Dinsdale? Mm. Well, yeah. Um, if you you can go and lis listen to interviews online, and you, you uh, there's a lot of biographical information in the man who filmed Nessie, and they were upper middle class. Yeah, so we think now uh, that that sounds crazy because now the world is kind of professionalised, and we don't have this network of upper middle class people. But I mm. think in 1960 that was not unusual, mm. right? I've just found something that might be of interest to you, chaps. Here mm. you go, right? 
um, that you would just you would just contact people. That's something you do. Sure, why not sell a, send a telegram to the to the, the British Museum? Sure, you know we're all the same sorts of people. We're all interested in this stuff here. You know, it's not. Whereas now we could tend to think of things in there are experts and professional str- ways to do this. There are communication channels and that sort of thing. But I think back then it wasn't like that. The sixties is a long time ago in that in that respect. Um, in terms of class and how people interacted and what they thought they could do. I don't think that was a particularly arrogant thing for an upper-middle-class person to do. You might say it's internalised arrogance, that they, because they're upper-middle-class, they feel like this it's just fine. And if mm. everyone did that, then the British Museum would be buried in telegrams, which essentially <laughs> is what's happened in the modern world, isn't it? Yeah, yes. just they're called now they're called emails. Yeah, mm. <clears throat> but I think back then it was probably yeah. I don't think it would be unusual at all. All right. Yeah. Uh, so there we go. Yeah. Okay. Shall so, we wrap this up? Yes. We hope you enjoyed listening to episode seventy-two of <laughs> oh, the world famous Ted Wozniak podcast. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's sorry if you don't like longness stuff, but like I say, I'm not so much. I'm not. I'm not writing about it because I. I don't think, think now is the time to be apologising to them. If they don't like Loch Ness, it's going to be called the Loch Ness Special. We said we're talking yeah, about I, Loch Ness, and we don't. I'm they've hung c- out all the way through the end. I'm gonna. I'm gonna cover it on the uh, blog as well. Right. So. It's like because I'm really interested in this, like the human side of this story, and uh, you know, because sometimes I feel a bit guilty. It's like writing about this stuff. You're sort of promoting woo. You're sort of promoting belief in crap. Because uh, because I do think that a lot of the stuff surrounding Loch Ness and similar creatures is is crap, and uh, paying too much attention to it is not good. Yeah. Anyway, okay, so we're going to try and get on some sort of semblance of a schedule. From here on, so we're going to start every two weeks. Going to, well, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. But keep, <laughs> but keep listening and see, and see how it turns so out. Let's start at eleven. Okay. Um, so you are John. Is it Conrad? <laughs> Conrad Todd. <laughs> yeah, I'm the John Conway on Twitter. Ignore all the other John Conways. Yeah, none of them more famous than you, mathematicians or anything. <clears throat> oh, jeez. The audacity of that man to have the same name as you. Yeah, and be interested in something vaguely similar. <clears throat> it's annoying. <laughs> um, are you on the internet, apart from Twitter, which you don't use anyway? Yep. JohnConway.co is my website. Okay. I am Dr... Darren Nash. I blog at com. By the way, we don't, did you know, we don't have any adverts on com, which surprises some people. They're like, why don't you have adverts? And it's like, well, because we're not in this for the money. Have Such. ads on it? Yeah. On, on the, the blog. On the blog. We don't have ads on the blog. Oh, right. Yeah. Which a lot of people do these days. Yeah. It's morally wrong. It's morally wrong. I tweet at 
No, not actually. Our operation is small enough not to be noticed, which is advantageous for everybody since our customers are anxious to avoid attracting attention to themselves. Aren't you afraid the Empire's going to find out about this little operation and shut you down? There's always been a danger looming like a shadow over everything we built here, but things have developed that will ensure security. I've just made a deal that will keep the Empire out of here forever. Pachoo, pachoo! <laughs> would be honored if you would join us at Tetzu. 